What about that? Amen. Aren't you glad He rescued a sinner like me and like you? Amen. And He guarantees. He guarantees. Amen. And a lot of guarantees you can count on, Brother Kim, but you can count on His. He guarantees. Amen. The Hebrews writer said that by two, two immutable things, we could swear by no greater. He swore by Himself that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong anchor for the soul who have fled and found refuge in Him. Amen. I'm glad He guarantees this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 2 with me this morning. Revelation chapter number 2. For the past uh, few weeks we've been moving through this, uh, this uh, beginning portion of the book of Revelation and uh, we have been examining God's message uh, to these seven churches. We began the first week looking at a broad message that Christ gives uh, to the church, and uh, then we began making our way through these churches. We preached a couple weeks ago on the church at Ephesus on losing your first love. We preached last week on the church at Smyrna and how to be faithful unto death. And I want us to look this morning at the church at Pergamos, and let's hear what God has to say to this body of believers, and I think He's saying it to us as well this morning. Revelation chapter number 2 Verse number 12, the Word of God says unto the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou, thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this day, for this opportunity. What a precious thing it is for us to be assembled in this place. Lord, there's so many across our country and across the world that are unable to be in God's house. And I just want to praise you and thank you that we're able to be here today. I thank You, Lord, for Your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that saves us. I thank You for His grace, and I thank You for His guarantees, Lord, that He died in our place, that He secured us salvation, and, Lord, that we are eternally saved in Him. I pray that You'd use Your Word this morning, that You'd wield it in the hearts of Your people. Uh, may we, Lord, both learn of You and love You more as we leave this place today. May we be more devoted, more dedicated unto You as we examine Your Word We'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we move through this passage of Scripture, we're going to do our best with the Lord's help to look at most everything that's said here and make comment on it. But I have uh, been burdened to do this as we preach through these messages, to find what I believe to be the theme of each of these letters and to emphasize that in our preaching. For instance, when we looked at the church at Ephesus, the emphasis was... Try saying that ten times fast. The emphasis at Ephesus, amen? Uh, the, the, it's tough, tough work up here what I'm doing, amen? 
the, uh, the, the emphasis at Ephesus was leaving your first love. When we looked at Smyrna, the emphasis was being faithful unto death. It identified closely with a time of deep persecution of God's people. And the Lord says to him, hey, listen, don't turn back. Don't give up. Don't lay down. Don't quit. Don't go backwards. Just be faithful unto death. When I read the passage this morning, there is a phrase that jumps out at me. And I would probably bet that you even noticed it as well. In verse number 13, it's sort of said in two different ways. The Lord says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. He says they're dwelling even where Satan's seat is. Later on in this verse, speaking of Antipas who was martyred, he says that he was slain among you where Satan dwelt. I want to preach to you this morning on where Satan dwelleth. I want to preach to you about our world that we're living in and our responsibility as believers within that world and what we need to consider and what we need to caution ourselves against. But of all the places that this could have been said of, it is not insignificant that the Lord speaks of the ancient city of Pergamos in Asia Minor. Let me read you a little bit of context that may help you understand why the Lord chose this place as uh, denoting it as the headquarters of satanic influence in the ancient world. Pergamos, called the greatest city in Asia Minor, was the capital city of Messiah, a Roman province in the northwest of Asia Minor. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, it was not a city of commerce. Pergamos was known chiefly for its religion. It was an illustrious and religious city of wealth and fashion. There one would find temples erected in honor of many gods. Some of its chief deities were Zeus and Aphrodite and Aesculapius, the latter being the god of medicine, whose insignia was the entwined serpent on the staff. And this is still a medical symbol today, by the way, in a lot of hospitals. Satan, of course, is likewise symbolized as the serpent. Pergamos also had the first temple dedicated to Caesar and was a rabid promoter of the imperial cult. Thus our Lord said that this assembly was situated in the city where Satan's seat or Satan's throne is. Now Satan's throne is not in hell. The whole idea of Satan's headquarters being in hell is preposterous. Satan is the prince of this world. So said Christ Himself on at least three occasions. Paul and John taught likewise that Satan held leadership over this world system. His rule extends to both the celestial and the terrestrial spheres. The religious city was an ideal place for Satan to establish his headquarters inasmuch as his most effective work is accomplished through religious organizations and institutions. While communism and atheism are avowed enemies of Jesus Christ and therefore under Satan's control, Satan himself operates to his greatest advantage through his demons who pose as ministers of righteousness. The very word Pergamos has in it the same root from which we get our English words for bigamy and polygamy. It's the word for marriage. And this particular, uh, this particle which forms the first syllable frequently calls attention to something that is objectionable. In other words, Pergamos signifies a mixed marriage in the most objectionable sense of the word. For it is the marriage of the organization of the church of Jesus Christ with the world. Like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, the believers in Pergamos had suffered persecution and one of their men had died for the faith. In spite of intense suffering, this church had remained true to God. They refused to drop incense on the altar and say Caesar is Lord. Can I pause there and say some of us may soon be having to decide that we're not going to drop incense on the altar and say Caesar is Lord in our country. 
We may be facing a time when we've got to draw a line and say, hey, I'll go no further. I'm sorry, I'm unwilling uh, to give allegiance to anyone but Jesus Christ. The Lord's description of Himself, He which hath the sharp sword, would surely encourage the people, for the sword was also the symbol of the Roman proconsul. It was more important that the church fear Christ's sword than the Roman sword. When he writes to this little body of believers, they are literally in a place, a mecca of corrupt and polluted religious worship. And he writes to them to encourage them. He writes to them to admonish them about some things that are starting to creep up in their body of believers. And he writes to them uh, to secure them in their confidence in knowing that he's in control of it all. In other words, he's preaching to a world that's planted, to a, to a church that's planted right smack in the middle of a godless world. Can I tell you, I don't know that there's any more relevant and pertinent of these letters than the one we read this morning. For we likewise are living in a world that hates Christ, that hates God, that hates the things of God. I was seeing just this past week where Snopes, which is allegedly a credible source, emphasis on the word allegedly, uh, that is meant for the purpose of quote-unquote fact-checking, allegedly. We know how that's taken on a life of its own but how that Snopes wrote an article saying that one of the most dangerous conspiracy theories in the world today was young earth creationism. We're going to be passing out ten full hats at the end of the service for anybody that wants one. I'll, I'll wear mine proudly. Put my name on it. That don't bother me. I am a young earth creationist. I believe that God created the world in six literal days and on the seventh day that He rested. Now you say, well preacher, that's good. I appreciate that news bite. What's that got to do with anything? Well don't you know we're also living in a time where conspiracy theories are being criminalized. Where if they can label something as a conspiracy theory, now they'll fall down on it with the full weight and arm of uh, society and of, uh, of uh, government and of the judicial system. I'm saying we may not be far away from standing up and saying, I believe God created the world is enough to get a man in trouble with our government. We're living in a world that is seeking to oppress and to crush and to destroy the body of believers. So I think, listen, if there's ever time, Brother Ken, we need to be reading this letter, I think this morning would be a good time for us to look at it. It's been my custom the past two weeks, if two weeks can be called a custom, to look first at the description of the Lord that He gives of Himself. But I want to wait and do that a little bit later in the message. For We'll find that it bears deeply. In fact, he's described back in verse 12 as the one that hath the sharp two-edged sword. And then when we get a little further down in the text in verse 16, he tells us what he's going to do with that sword. And so we'll wait until we get there to say a word about that. And the first thing I want us to notice this morning, and we'll just follow the text as it presents itself, the first thing the Lord points out, as he has done with each of these churches, he mentions what is good about him. He speaks to what they are doing right. Boy, I'm glad the Lord's not like a lot of folks. A lot of folks never see a thing you do right. All they see is what you do wrong. But the Lord notices and mentions what they do right. So the first thing we see in this passage is the steadfastness of the saints. Look with me at verse number 13. The Lord says about this body of believers, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now the first thing that I notice when I read through that is I notice the setting of their steadfastness. We've already mentioned it and I won't belabor it, but he says, listen, you ain't just standing, you're standing in Satan's throne room. 
Can I say to you this morning, and, and I hope you take this in the right spirit. I mean it. I, I believe in the right spirit. We've been able to enjoy in our country a lot of freedoms, a lot of liberties, a, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, luxuries, a lot of prosperities, a lot of security for a long time. And I praise the Lord for it. I pray we get another hundred years of it or two hundred years of it. I think that'd be wonderful. Uh, but the reality is the church is not promised a time of ease and of leisure and of luxury. The promise is not given anywhere in the Bible that the world's not going to hate you. In fact, the promise is given that the world is going to hate you. And it's still in my King James Bible, but they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now listen, we've been living in a time where it's been easy to stand. And I don't begrudge that. I don't begrudge that one bit. I'm glad. I praise the Lord I was raised in that. I praise the Lord your parents was raised in that. I think that's wonderful. But we may be entering a time where it's not going to be quite so easy to take a stand. Their stand was taken not whenever Rome was endorsing and applauding and encouraging Christianity, but they stood at a time when it cost them something to stand. I'm saying this, we got a responsibility to stand whether it's easy to stand or whether it ain't easy to stand. In fact, the argument could be made, uh, if you only stand when it's easy to stand, you ain't standing, you're just leaning. Amen? Uh, If we're not standing, if we don't have enough strength and backbone to stand when there's opposition, then we're really not standing at all. Where was this setting? Well, I I noticed a few things, and I'm just going to mention them in passing. Where they lived. Where did they live in Pergamos? Well, first it was a place of idolatry. It was a place where men worshipped false gods and where religion was deeply corrupted and polluted. We could say this, it was a place where men are wayward. And certainly we're living in a world today who the only trappings of organized religion that are allowed to stand unmolested are puerile ecumenicalism that embraces any sort of faith, any sort of dogma, any sort of creed and treats all of them as though they are the same. There's a lot, in other words, that's called Christianity today that isn't Christianity. There's a lot that's called Christian that isn't Christianity today. There's a lot of idolatry in the world that we live in, and men are wayward. They're going their own direction. Number two, it was a place of immorality. Uh, it was a place where very often in these pagan uh, cults, in their temples, in their rites, and in their rituals, they would engage in all sort of lewd and lascivious behavior. In other words, it was a place not just where men are wayward, Brother Ken, but it was a place where men are wicked. Where any and everything was permitted, and not only permitted, but promoted. And that's where we're living at today. We're living in a time where the most righteous thing you can do is be unrighteous. Uh, where the most virtuous thing you can do is have no virtue. (laughs) We're living in a day where the more wicked you are, the more lauded and applauded and appreciated and exalted and encouraged and advanced you are in the world that we're living in today. In fact, uh, the thing that is the greatest impediment to personal advancement for most people is their morals, their ethics, their righteousness and their virtue. You say, how do you know that's true, preacher? Because look at the people at the highest rungs of power. Do they have any virtue? Do they have any morality? Do they have any any righteousness? Look at the people that govern over us. What you'll find is this. They are completely amoral, if not immoral, in every way. They were living in a time like this. It was a place of immorality. But then number three, it was a place of infidelity. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it was a place where uh, not only are men wayward and men are wicked, but it was a place where men are worshipped. Uh, they used uh, Caesar as a new deity for uh, to be worshipped. And uh, Caesar demanded that all men bow down and, and burn incense unto him and, and bow unto him and proclaim him as Lord and proclaim him as King and proclaim him as God. It was a time when, oh, listen now, it was a time when the headship of Christ was being challenged by the arm of the state. It was a time, I'm not, well, that's all right. I'm going to go ahead and say it again then. 
is a time when the headship of Christ is being challenged by the arm of the state. The long arm of Rome, its governmental and judicial and legal power, its military prowess is all being uh, brought to weight against the fledgling church. And they were being told, all you have to do is just bow. You can worship your Jesus, but make sure you bow down to Caesar and worship Him. I, I'm not gonna, I don't have the time to get into it like I wish I did. But suffice it to say, we're living in a day where men worship when they're permitted by government to worship. Where men witness when they're permitted by government to witness. Where men testify when they're permitted by government to testify. Where, where men uh, take up the duties of the home and educate their children only when the government permits them to educate their children. We're living in a day where uh, the long arm of our Rome is looking and saying, you can worship Jesus, but you better bow down and kiss Caesar's feet first. It was a place of infidelity. And in that environment they stood. Now what are we going to say about that? Well, I'm going to say this right here. If they stood, we can stand. If they stood, we can stand. If God give them grace to stand, then we can stand in our day. So I notice the setting of their steadfastness. Number two, I notice the strength of their steadfastness. In a time when men were called upon to bow before an altar and to swear allegiance unto Caesar, what were they doing? We could say it this way probably, if the, if the setting of their steadfastness spoke of where they lived, then the strength of their steadfastness spoke of who they loved. And how does the Lord describe their steadfastness? Here's what He says. He says, Thou holdest fast My name and hast not denied My faith. What are we called upon to do in these days? Well, two things. I'd say number one, they professed Christ's person. They were unashamed to say, I am a Christian and Jesus is my Savior. You have no, no clue how revolutionary of a thing it is to merely be willing to stand and say, Christ is my Savior and He is the only way to heaven. We gather ourselves, and please, I don't say this begrudgingly, I thank the Lord for God's house, but we gather ourselves in this place, and it's a safe area where the name of Christ can be proclaimed without scorn and without derision. But I'm telling you, when you leave these walls, when you leave the walls of your own home, when you go out into a world that doesn't know God, and stand up and say, I am a Christian, I believe Christ is the Son of God, I believe He died for my sins and rose the third day, I believe He's the only way to heaven and He's the only hope for mankind, you're making radical statements. I don't know when it happened, but at some point it happened in this country that that became a radical statement. Well, what should we do? Well, some would say we need to quiet down about our Christianity. That is not what the church at Pergamos did. They held fast His name. What is the name associated with? Well, it's associated with His salvation. It's associated with His identity, with His power, with His testimony, with His gospel. In other words, when men were saying, say, say Caesar is Lord, they said, I will not. Because He is not. Christ is my Lord. So they, they profess Christ's person. Number two, they practice Christ's precept. I love the way this is said. The Lord says, hast not denied my faith. He does not say you haven't denied your faith. He doesn't say you haven't denied the faith. He says you haven't denied my faith. He personalizes the body of biblical doctrine as being that of His own, that of His own care and that of His own character. And here's what he's saying. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, if you're going to deny my faith, then you're denying my name. In other words, it's not just enough to profess Christianity. We also have to live Christianity in front of the world. And to profess it 
to name the name of Christ. I've been preaching on Wednesday nights out of 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Timothy tells Paul that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. To name the name of Christ and not depart iniquity is to be a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's to be just the kind of hypocrite that the devil's looking for. They had practiced his precepts. They said, we're not going to be involved in, 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 in the uh, lewd things in that temple. We're not going to be involved in the unrighteous things that are being asked of us and required from us. We're not trying to force anybody by the edge of the sword to convert to Christianity, but likewise we are willing to die by the edge of the sword if we have to, to maintain our Christianity. They were unwilling to walk away from the body of biblical doctrine. Hey, listen, are you going to deny his faith? Uh, when they come to you, homeschool parents, I'm one of them. When they come to you and they say, listen, that curriculum you're using, that they, they won't work because it teaches creationism. And you're going to have to instead use this state-approved curriculum for your children. You say, you're crazy. You don't know nothing about it. If you knew anything about it, you'd know that ain't crazy at all. I'm talking about they're looking every direction they can to get their tendrils into the homeschool uh, place and, and, and into the place because it's a place they can't control. It's a place that they can't manipulate. It's a place that they can't bring to heal. It's a place where people don't kiss the altar of Caesar. And parents, when they come to us, I'm saying not just you, I'm saying us, when they come to us and they say, you ain't going to be able to teach kids anymore if you're going to teach that creation stuff to them. What are we going to do? Or we're going to say, well, you know, I'm, I hate that, but you know, this, this is what they want, kids. This is, I'm, I'm sorry. We're going to say, no, no, thank you. It's my child. It's my child. It's my child. And as such, I'm going to teach them what I believe is right and what I believe is true. These are real things. If you think they ain't real things, God bless you. That's wonderful. It's because you ain't in a place in life to have to worry about it. But those of us that are doing that, we're having to think about real things that regard this. I'm talking about where our lines are drawn. Talking about what we're willing to allow to happen and not willing to allow to happen to our families, to our kids, to our lives. I'm just saying this, we're entering a time, and I use that because it's a present example. We could talk about all kinds of things that don't regard homeschooling or educating your children, whatever they might be. Don't think just because your kid's grown you ain't educating them, they ain't going to come for you too. They'll come for you too. They'll find something. I use that as an example because of how they are even right now demonizing creationism. But it don't matter what it is, they're going to come one way or the other. They're going to come for you. So I'm saying this morning, I see the steadfastness, the strength of their steadfastness. And then notice this, and I, I ain't got to say a lot about it. I'll just mention it and move on. Notice the sacrifice of their steadfastness. It says, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now, we don't really know much about Antipas, but we know everything we need to know about him from our Bible here. We know that he was a part of the body of believers at Pergamos. We know that he evidently was martyred for his faith, and we know he was faithful up to death. He was slain among you, he says, where Satan dwelleth. I see, Brother Ken, the sacrifice of their steadfastness. You say, what do you mean? Well, notice first off, uh, and we've been saying it this way, where they lived and who they loved, but notice what they lost. The chaste had paid the price. Antipas. Those that were unwilling to bow paid the price. Now, I wish I could tell you that, listen, uh, the, the moment persecution comes, uh, then the Lord's going to open the heavens and rescue us all from us. Uh, but the truth of the matter is this, we don't know what we're going to have to endure. We don't know what we're going to have to endure. Well, let me just go ahead and say it so you know what I'm saying. I believe, I believe that the Lord's going to rapture the church out before the tribulation, but that don't mean things is going to be just crystal and cake all the way up to the tribulation. I believe He's going to rapture us out before the first day of the tribulation. But that don't mean there ain't going to be some uh, hard times even leading up to it. I don't know. But I know this, those uh, that are faithful unto the Lord, they may pay a price 
but they'll be rewarded. And that's what the Lord said. You remember in the Gospels, He said, no man that has forsaken uh, family or land or wealth, or whatever it might be, uh, none of them are going to suffer for it. They'll all be repaid back a hundredfold what they've given up. I see that the chaste had paid the price. But then number two, I see the church had paid the price. Uh, you know, it wasn't just Antipas. And in some ways, Antipas got off easy. Now you say, well, preacher, what do you mean? Well, he just went right into the arms of the Lord. That body of believers had to grieve for him, had to miss him, had to worry over what it would mean for them, had to fret and had to trust the Lord and have confidence and courage in the Lord. So in other words, it's not just that individual, but it's the very body of Christ itself that is the target of assault in this world that we're living in. Listen to me this morning. The sooner you recognize that the, the, the devil hates the church, the sooner this world will start to make more sense to you. I know, we've been called everything throughout this past year. We said, I remember, man, I remember standing out underneath the walnut trees at Brother Carey's house when this whole thing fell apart and saying they're going to do everything they can to try to take away the church and to try to destroy it. And I was called crazy and I was told it was just two weeks and we are just flattening the curve. But we've seen what's happened in this past year. Now thankfully there's probably been a lot of places that have done what they had to and no more. But we've seen a lot of places across our country that have gone above and beyond whatever public safety, uh, you know, uh, public health safety things might have been called upon and have used it as an opportunity to try to squeeze the freedoms away from the church. You say, what are you saying by all that, preacher? I'm saying this. If I got a tinfoil hat on, so do you. I'm saying we ain't crazy. I'm not saying that the, that, that the county mayor is trying to shut down churches. What I am saying is there's a devil that's the prince of the power of this world that does want to destroy the work of God. He hates the church and he wants to destroy it. You better believe this world system is not friendly to the true and living church of Jesus Christ. It is openly and unabashedly hostile. So I see the steadfastness of the saints. But then notice number two, I see the strategy of Satan. I see that Satan was working in his own house. Where his throne was, he was busy at work. And so, think about it this way. You know, if you're, if you've ever worked on a public job, have people that work underneath you and this and that, you know, you got your way of doing it and then you got, you got the way that you tolerate it being done, right? And it may not be the way you do it, but you tolerate it because efficiency demands it. But if you ever looked at it and said, boy, if I had done it, I would have done it just such and such a way. Well, if Satan's going to persecute the church, how's he going to do it? Here he is at his throne, his home in Pergamos. And I'd like to believe, and I trust that this is the case, this was exactly how Satan would try to destroy a church. I don't believe it was lower level devils or demons. I don't believe it was fallen angels. I believe it was Satan himself at work in this little body. So we can find out exactly what his strategy is. Notice three things. Number one, he tried to crush them through persecution. He tried to uh, pull all of the powers and all of the, the uh, militaries of this world against this little fledgling body of believers. And he tried, first off, before he tried anything else, he just tried to beat them into submission. I don't know what lays ahead of us. I told him in Sunday school, I had a crystal ball, but I sold it on the marketplace. Amen. I don't have it anymore. And, and, and I mean that. I mean, there's, there's so many things I thought I knew a year and a half ago and things I thought I knew six months ago. And things I thought I knew an hour ago, but, you know, it just seems like it's a little hard. to. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know this, that Satan, if he acts in accordance with his M.O., and I do believe he'll do that, his first step is to try to just through sheer brute force destroy God's people. What's the first thing he did to Job? He tried to wreck everything that he had. 
He didn't send the friends in to discourage Job until after that. His first step was to destroy everything that he had. You say, preacher, that's, that's discouraging. No, everything that we have ain't even down here. He can't touch everything that we have. And, and if he can touch everything you have in your life, you need to fix that. You see, he could touch everything Job had down here, but he couldn't touch nothing Job had up there. We don't have to be discouraged. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm just saying, he tried to crush them through persecution. When that didn't work, he tried to corrupt them through perversion. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, but I have a few things against thee. Boy, you talk about, <laughs> you talk about being scared to hear God say that. I, 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 he'd probably say it to me this morning. He says, but I have a few things against thee. This is the problem he had. He said, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now this is interesting. I, I'll give you a short overview of the Old Testament story of Balaam. Balaam was a Gentile prophet in the Old Testament. He was not a, an Israelite. He was not a Jew. But, but somehow he knew who God was and he had some sort of relationship with God because he was a prophet. And the children of Israel were getting, to mar- getting ready to march through the land of Moab. And the king of Moab was worried. He was scared that they would destroy him, that they would conquer him, that they would overthrow their towns and and, and pillage them and take what they had. So he goes to Balaam and he says, listen, I know the God of Israel is a powerful God. And you as a prophet of that God have power with Him. So Balaam, I will pay you whatever it takes if you will curse them in the name of their God so that they cannot defeat us. Balaam looks at him and says, well, listen, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Balak, I, I, your, your majesty, I wish I could do it for you, uh, but, but God has blessed these people, and if He's blessed them, I, don't, I may be a prophet, but I'm not God. I can't unbless what God has blessed. I cannot curse what God has blessed. So Balak goes away, and then he sends back word, and he ups the offer a little bit, and Balaam gets to thinking about that, and he's trying to figure out some way that he can get the money and run. And so what he does is he goes to Balak and he says, listen, God has blessed them. You cannot reverse that blessing, but you can break it. Here's what you need to do, Balak. Get all of your best looking Moabite women. I don't know if Moabite women are good looking, but from the text, it sounds like there probably was. Get all your best looking Moabite women and go and entrap and ensnare and seduce the Israelite men. Uh, Cause them to marry with your women. And when they marry with your women, they'll adopt and worship your God as well. And here's what he's saying. You cannot curse them but you can corrupt them. And when you corrupt them, you won't have to curse them, Balak. God will curse them for their disobedience. That exact thing takes place. I won't go through all that you read in the book of Numbers about everything that takes place, but suffice it to say, it it works exactly like Balaam uh, proclaimed that it would. Now, what does that have to do with the church at Pergamos? Well, the Lord draws a line between that kind of behavior and what's going on at the church at Pergamos. What the devil's trying to do to destroy that body of believers. So let's stop and think about it. Let's ask ourselves, how was he trying to corrupt them through perversion? Well, number one, I think he was doing it with the wisdom of the world. Uh, Balaam and Balak, could basically that story be summarized in this way? Balaam taught Balak to use God for his own purposes instead of repenting and submitting to God's will and God's purposes. You know what the right answer for Balaam to have given would have been? He would have, he should have looked at Balak and said, Balak, if you're worried about it, then just throw away your false gods, believe on the God of Israel, and He'll protect you. Obey unto Him and He'll, He'll protect you. But instead He said this, no, I know you don't want to do that. I know you want to keep living unrighteously, Balak, so here's what you do. You try to use God for your purposes instead of submitting 
unto Him. You know, that's the wisdom of this world. You know one of the first ways that God cripples a Bible-believing church? By causing them to merchandise in, in, in God. By causing them to traffic in unfelt religion. To use God for their own purposes and to operate in the machinery and the energy of the flesh instead of God's blessing and God's favor. If he can get a church to get comfortable with Jesus not being around, he's got that church to feed him. If he can get that church comfortable with operating in their own strength instead of the strength of the Spirit of God, he's got that. He don't have to do another thing to it. It don't matter. Their music might not change. Their dress standards might not drop. Their preaching might stay the same. But if God ain't in it, the devil's done what he wants to do. He's run God out of that community. I see He used the wisdom of this world. Number two, I see He used the worship of the world to eat things sacrificed unto idols. In other words, He taught them. Here's what they did. They said, we're going to keep the God of of Israel, but we're also going to start worshiping these false Moabite gods. In other words, they did not displace. They instead distorted their religion. They didn't say, we don't believe in the God of Israel anymore. They said, well, we still believe in Him, right? But... We think there's probably room for some other gods here as well. You know, this happened in a lot of churches today. And it's happened in the life of a lot of believers. And by the way, not just as it regards. I know, you're, you're with me. You're, you're amen in me. You're to all them godless reprobates that ain't sitting on Wall Ridge Road. Listen this morning. Idolatry don't just have to do with the God that you worship externally or religiously or corporately. It has to do with what you cherish the most in life. You know what a lot of us have done. You know, we ain't got no false gods as far as idols in our home. But here's what we've done. We've said, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the most important thing. But I'm going to prioritize everything else in life above Him. Boy, the Lord was just rough on you all. (laughs) In other words, the idolatry is a marriage of the world with Christianity. Not, Not a jettisoning of Christianity. But in other words, trying to maintain it, but still go the way of the world and do what the world What does our Christianity look like this morning? And then I see not only with the wisdom of this world and the worship of this world, but I see with the wickedness of this world. He taught them to commit fornication. And by the way, this undoubtedly was physical, carnal fornication, but it was also spiritual fornication as well. They were engaged in these practices in these pagan temples, but it went even beyond that because they were literally prostituting their soul unto the devil. They were allowing the bride of, the, of Christ to become the harlot of the world. We, you said, preacher, how, how does the devil destroy a, a church? Well, first he just tries to just hammer them, just destroy them, just break them and shatter them to pieces. He's tried to do that a lot this past year, hasn't he? He's tried to do that a lot this past year, hasn't he? But if that don't work, he tries to come in with wickedness. With, with corruption, with compromise, with perversion to try to pollute the body of Christ. And then not only do we see uh, to corrupt them through perversion, but then finally to conquer them through priests. He says in verse 15, So hast thou also then that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now it's interesting that word Nicolaitans. It's found uh, in, the, in the prior letter as well. or I've Actually, excuse me, at the, the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus. And there's a little dispute as to who exactly it's talking about when it talks about the Nicolaitans. But the best guess that we have, and the best idea that we have, it comes from a word, Nicolaitan, and you can even hear the term laity in the word Nicolaitan. It means to conquer the people. In, in other words, it's probably associated, particularly early on before the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, it's probably associated with Gnosticism in the day that 
uh, John is pinning this down. Uh, later on, of course, the Roman Catholic Church would displace the Gnosticism and would become the conquering and subjugating priesthood that would try to categorize and bust up the body of Christ into classes and so on and so forth. Uh, but e- even at this time, it's taking place before the Roman Catholic Church is even in existence. So it's probably talking about the Gnostics. But here's what I want to say about it. He, he tries, number one, to uh, to uh, kill them, to crush them through persecution. Number two, to corrupt them through perversion. And then when he can't do that, here's what he does. He goes after the leadership and he tries to corrupt them through their priests. To bring them into subjugation and to, to certify and authenticate their corruption through corrupt men. Uh, in, in other words, he tries to get uh, priests and, and we might even say here in America, preachers to get up and say that things that are wrong are right and things that are right are wrong. To set a new standard, to give us new rules to plague by. And pretty soon when that happens, the people lose heart because there's no one leading them in righteousness. So I see in this passage the strategy of Satan. Now I've got to hasten. Number three, I see the sword of the Savior. Notice what it says here in verse number 12. Look backwards with me at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, in each of these letters, there's been a fit description of the Savior that has been part of a composite. It's been part of a a, a larger picture that was painted in chapter number 1. Well, what does he pick up on here? He picks up on this sharp sword with two edges. We know what that sword is, right? That sword is the Word of God. Uh, The Bible says it's sharper in the book of Hebrews than any two-edged sword. Uh, The Bible tells us that whenever the Lord comes back in power and in glory at the end of the tribulation period, He'll have a sword proceeding out of His mouth. And that sword is called the Word of God. He's talking about the Word of God here. What does He say He's going to do with it? This is why I didn't say anything about it because He tells us what He's going to do with His Word. Verse 16, He says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The chosen weapon of the Lord is always the Word of God. The Word of God. Uh, Pilate was uh, worried that uh, the followers of Jesus Christ would take up arms and try to overthrow Rome and Christ set him at ease. Immediately he said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now there's coming a day, his, his kingdom is never going to be of this world, but there is coming a day, his kingdom is going to be in this world. But right now in this dispensation of grace, we're not commissioned to convert anyone by the edge of the sword for conversion is a matter of the heart and not a matter of uh, of where they bow the knee to. So what does he mean when he says this? His chosen weapon is the Word of God. He was going to go to war in this little body of believers with the truth of God's Word. And how was he going to do it? Well, number one, they would be examined by His Word. Because every church for it to be healthy has to be willing to be examined by His Word. If you're going to be a healthy Christian, you've got to be willing to be examined by His Word. You've got to hear the preaching of the truth of the Word of God and be willing to say, now what's God saying to me? To me. Not not to them other folks. Not to the folks that ain't here. The folks that ought to be here. What is God saying? I hate to break this to you. You may not realize this. God knew who'd be here and who wasn't this morning. He knew you'd be here today. We've got to be willing to be examined by the Word. Number two, notice they would be exposed by His Word interesting thing here. He says, I will come unto thee. But then he says, I will fight against them. Now, why does he make that distinction? Because he's saying not everybody in this little body of believers is like that. He said, I'm not going to destroy the whole church. He said, I have the wisdom and the omniscience to come and to make a distinction between the two. So the Word of God, it not only examines us, it exposes us. 
If there's anything in our life that ain't what it ought to be, He'll uncover it. He'll make it plain. He'll make it aware before us. He'll draw the distinction. He's always just in what He does. He doesn't destroy those that need to be preserved. He doesn't preserve those that ought to be destroyed. He always does everything in proper measure. And then number three, they'd be expelled by His Word. Uh, sooner or later, He's saying this, if the Word of God's preached there, sooner or later, they'll either get right or get out. He, now, let me say this, there's coming a day He's going to judge the world by the Word of God and it's going to be a literal explicit judgment of a destruction. That's what the Bible tells us at the end of the tribulation period. But even right now, you know what God does? God uses His Word to purge the body of believers. Purge the body of believers. If we won't preach the Word, there won't be no purging to take place. If we won't teach the Word, there won't be no purging to take place. If we won't read the Word, there won't be any purging take place, but it's vital. It's a deep necessity because the body of Christ, listen now, it's not an organization, it's an organism. It's an organism. There's a symbiotic relationship in an organism, right? If your foot's hurting, your arm knows about it. You say, I don't believe that. Well, you ain't old enough yet. One of these days you will be. (laughs) So I see the sword of the Savior and finally, and I'll just mention these and be done, I see the supply is spiritual. So here's where things lay to Pergamos. God looks at him and says, you're in a place where it ain't easy to stand, but I'm calling on you to stand. You're in a place where you're going to have to suffer for it. And some of you might even die for your testimony. But be faithful unto death. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Here's how Satan's going to try to do it, church. He's going to try to crush us through persecution. Then he's going to try to corrupt us through perversion. And if that don't work, he'll try to conquer the church through priests, through through inordinate and inappropriate leadership that tries to create a class system within the body of believers. But he says to them, here's what's going to happen. You better deal with it or I'll come with the word of my mouth, with the sword of the Spirit, and I'll deal with that. I'll address that in the body of believers. Then he closes with an encouraging word to those that were overcoming. Look what he says down in verse number 17. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you know, every time he says that, you know why? Because the only folks that hear in the church are those that have an ear to hear. I'm not talking about people that ain't got hearing problems or whatever, at least not physically. I'm talking about the people that hear are those that want to hear. Those that have an ear to hear. I've sat in churches before and God been ringing my bell and I was oblivious to it because I didn't want to hear it. We've got to be willing to hear. Let him that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And then he says this, if you listen to what I've told you, if you repent, if you get your life right, if you overcome these things that are standing in opposition to the church, he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. To him that overcometh, well, I give to eat of the hidden man. What does he mean by the hidden manna? Well, I would say this. Manna, of course, is a picture of Christ. Manna was the bread that fell from heaven in the Old Testament that supernaturally sustained and preserved the children of Israel. And in the New Testament, Christ made clear in John chapter 6 that that was just a shadow. That was just a picture. Not that it didn't really happen. It did. But it was just a picture of the heavenly bread of Christ whose body would be broken, who would be given for mankind. But it doesn't just say the man. It says the hidden man. What does it mean, Brother Ken, by the hidden man? Well, you you know, a person could argue, I guess, and, that, and that's fine, but I'll tell you what I think it means. You know, in the Old Testament, they were to take, there was a few things they put within the Ark of the Covenant. They took the sword that was used to take Goliath's head. They took the copy of the tablets, the Word of God, that Moses had carved after he broke the first set and, and, and after he came down off. One of the things they put in that Ark was a pot of manna. And it was manna that no one ever saw except those that were busy, the high priests that were busy in the holy... It was a hidden man. It was kept in the holy of holies, the place where God's presence would sit down once a year and meet with His people, the place of God's seat. It's interesting. 
the, the Lord's saying, you're dwelling where Satan's seat is. Uh, but even while you're dwelling where Satan's seat is, you can also be dwelling where my seat is. You may be living in the place of the throne of Satan's authority. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy my sweet presence in your midst. So I, I would say it, it relates to the satisfaction of fellowship with Christ. The satisfaction of fellowship with Christ. In a world that is openly hostile and hates Bible Christianity, God's people are never alone. And the more that we're willing to walk close to Him, the more sweet and precious that He becomes. So I think it's the hidden manna. It speaks of of relationship and fellowship. Then He says this, I'm going to give you not only the hidden manna, He said, I'm going to give you the holy stone. He says, I will give Him a white stone. Now white in the Bible is typically associated with righteousness and purity. But what's the stone associated with? Well, you know, all through the Bible you'll find as a common theme that Christ is called our rock. Our stone. Our rock. He's our foundation. In fact, I I just quickly thought about three times. One, I find in the wilderness, He's the rock that followed them. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 says, that He was that rock that followed them that they got water out of. In other words, He's the providing stone for His people. And then you remember whenever Christ was was sort of speaking about the institution of the of the church and he looked at Peter and he said, "Thou art thou art Peter, that you're just you're you're a small rock, you're a pebble Peter." But then he said, "But I will build, I am the rock and I will build the church upon me." He said, "Upon this rock, speaking of himself, will I build my church." So he's the rock that's the foundation of the church. He's the persisting stone against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. No matter what the world tries to do, it can't get rid of Jesus Christ and it can't get rid of His church. He's the persisting stone. But then I find in Daniel chapter number 2, there's another stone that's spoken about. Brother Ken, you remember what I'm talking about, don't you? That when Nebuchadnezzar has that vision of the great image made of the different metals, and it's a picture of the world governments throughout the times of the Gentiles, the, the dispensation of the Gentiles. And uh, there, uh, the Bible says that, that the vision Nebuchadnezzar saw, he saw a stone that was cut without hands and was taken and was cast against the feet of, of, of that great idol and it destroyed, it ground to powder that, that idol that Nebuchadnezzar saw that represented human government. And then the Bible tells us that that stone, it grew up and it became a whole mountain that filled the whole world. And you know what it says it is? It's the kingdom of our God. In other words, He's not only the providing stone and the persisting stone, He's the prevailing stone. And you say, preacher, why? what does all that mean, give a man a white stone? Well, I think it means this. We need to be reminded that He is unchanging, that His righteousness is impeccable. In living in a godless world, you know what we need? We don't just need relationship and fellowship. We need resolve and fortitude. The confidence that you're living righteously, though the whole world condemn you. So He's going to give them a, a, the hidden manna and a holy stone, but then finally, and I'm done uh, with my introduction, He gives them a heavenly name. It says, and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. Now, we, we talked a week or so ago, we, we, we talked about how these promises that were given, if you take them all and read them back to back, it presents a composite view of what God does for the believer. And so these early ones are talking about what the Lord does when He saves a sinner. And He's reminding them of what was done when He saved them. And here's what He says to them. He says, when you got born again, I give you a new name. 
a new name. A new name in heaven. Now, why was that important? Well, in contrast to the glory-seeking Gnostics and Nicolaitans, the people that were trying to exert authority over God's people unduly, not in accordance with the structure of the New Testament church, that were trying to put themselves up as though they were better, or put themselves up as though they were more righteous. And the Lord says, don't you ever forget when you got born again, I give you a new name written in heaven, a righteous name. You don't have to be ashamed of me or ashamed of Christ in you. Not only is it a new name, but I notice it's a known name. He says, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, let's stop and think about this. Only two folks know it, right? Uh, the person that gave it and the person that received it. But he says, you know, that's all that matters is that you know that name and the Lord says that I know that name. It's a new name in heaven, but listen, it's a known name in heaven. In contrast to the uh, Nicolaitans and the Gnostics, those that claim to have exalted and exclusive knowledge, that claim to be a cut above. He says, now listen, don't you know, if nobody knows your name, I know your name. You know, I think the Lord must have just been being, He must have been thinking about that family of Antipas. Nobody knew Antipas' name. He's not anywhere in, in secular history. He's not anywhere in church history. He's not anywhere else in the Word of God. God says, I knew His name and I never forgot it. He was my faithful martyr. In other words, we're living in this wicked world, but the Lord can give us the grace to stand. We need to resolve to stand. We need to resolve to stand. If there's any corruption or compromise in our life, we need to get it right today. Don't put it off. Get it right today. Get it out of your life. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that you'll have that, that precious fellowship with Christ. You'll have the confidence you need to stand in this wicked world. And you'll have the peace that comes from knowing that God's in control. Though every man may hate you, every man may loathe you, you know your name's written in heaven that God's in control. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes. Alex, come play for us this morning. Would you play for the invitation? Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that Your people would get help. I pray that You'd help us to be resolved, Lord. I pray that You'd help us to, if there's anything in our life that shouldn't be there, to get it straight, get it right, to repent of it, to uh, put it under Your blood. And Lord, I pray that You'd help us to commit ourselves afresh and anew uh, to stand in this wicked world. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Alex,